Hello, and welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating biblical scholarship with ministry. Welcome, everyone. My name is Taylor, and I am here with Denver. Denver, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great, Taylor. Great. Well, our listeners are about to listen to an interview that we did with Leland Stevens. And before we get into the interview, we actually just wanted to kind of set up yeah. why we were having this conversation. Um, so it really stems back to Denver was doing some study on uh, nonviolence in the Christian tradition mm-hmm. and how that relates to you know Christians mm-hmm. serving in the military and whatnot. So we were having these conversations and he had really kind of leaned into holding this position of nonviolence. And so we want to bring Leland on to voice um, his perspective as someone who has been serving in a military context, church planting in a military context, um, because we felt like there was a lot of wisdom to share. But with that, we didn't really like debate him. So I think it'd be good if Denver, if you just kind of began by talking about your journey with this and what you have found in your studies, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. I think I think it's a topic that's probably relevant to anyone that's in ministry in any kind of pastoral role, um, especially as you're trying to pastor your people with just the world being its violent self. You know that there's <laughs> yeah. seems like every week, every day in the news, there's there's things that are happening in the world that are just awful and tragic and violence is happening. So you can't, it's not something you can escape, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just a part of our reality, unfortunately. And so it's a topic I've wrestled with, um, I guess for years now and really kind of did a deep dive on it. Um, a few years ago, I found, uh, Preston Sprinkle's book really helpful in that he kind of does a good job walking through the text. And we mentioned, I think we mentioned that book in the, in the episode, um, mm-hmm. But it used to be called Fight. I think the new edition is called just Nonviolence or huh. something like that. They changed the title? Yeah, they changed the title in the new edition, which is interesting. I've but never. <laughs> I read it when it was Fight, and uh, he does a really good job, and I think he makes a really good case for Christian nonviolence. So mm-hmm. um, what some people might call pacifism. Um, is, there a, is there a distinction there, or is that the same thing? Uh, some people would make a distinction um, I think I think people kind of pull away from the label pacifist sometimes just because negative connotations that yeah. come along with it. That people they think the root of the of it is the word passive, like I just allow oh. things to happen and I don't intervene and I don't take an active role in the world. And that's not pacifism. It, you know, the root is uh, like well, I guess it'd be pax pass like the Latin or whatever is like peace. Right. So peace is just choosing a peaceful posture. Um, and so a lot of people gravitate towards Christian nonviolence or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the position I've landed on. I, I, I agree with, uh, Sprinko and, you know, I've read people with other perspectives, like just war theory that kind of started with mm-hmm. Augustine and, um, you know, people who see legitimacy and violence used for self-defense uh-huh. and, or serving in the military. And so all those topics you know, they're all very complex and very nuanced, but they're also interrelated, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and just started asking myself, well, you know, what what does Jesus have to say about this? What is the way of Jesus? How does it inform the way Christians uh-huh. engage a world of violence? Can we serve in the military? Can we own lethal weapons? Can uh-huh. we use lethal weapons, you know? 
uh-huh. outside of like hunting and things like that. So um, it's a live topic. I mean, you know, this is, I think, hotly debated among Christians today. People have, I think, sometimes very passionate opinions on it. Yeah. And um, I think the value of having Leland on the, on the podcast is that as someone who was in the military, you know, yeah. he actually has real world experience um, with with that environment of being uh-huh. serving in the military, uh, he came to faith in the military, as he'll share. And so it's easy for someone like me to speak about, yeah. you know, pacifism and violence and serving in the military when I have very little experience in that. Yeah. Um, in part because of my position, you know, I refrain from engaging in that. But it's great to hear from him, get his perspective. I think people will find his perspective very nuanced. Yeah. Um, and that he's thinking really deeply about these things, which I really appreciated. And he was a really good dialogue partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what really shines in our conversation is uh, Leland's going to bring real world experience, but with some serious convictions from scripture. Um, yeah. And, and for, for people like you and I, like I, I remember talking to Leland saying the same thing, like, Leon, I don't know what it's like to be in the military. Like, I have no right. idea. It's just very easy for me to have these, like, abstract opinions about military service and, and things like that. Or or handling guns or, uh, you know, uh, violence in general. Like, I've just, I've, yeah. I've never really experienced violence. Um, yeah. Or been in a situation where that could have even been necessary. So, right. I think a lot of other ministry laborers might have that same kind of experience or situation where... Uh, like me, you're not really pressured to think deeply about this. But mm-hmm. I think in those situations, it's really easy to come to like simple conclusions about things, you know, when you don't have that pressure. Um, yeah. And what and what Leland brings is is a depth of experience that um, I for me helps pastorally walk through this issue sure. with people on different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And I think it's it's a topic that it's helpful to think through before you actually encounter the the pastoral situation that you need yes. to have some convictions or to have some advice, you know, to have some background information. I know when I was doing student ministry years ago, I had a student that was considering joining the military and like basically came to me and said, is this okay? Like, is this something that I can do as a Christian? And so I was glad that I had kind of thought through the topic before that happened. And then we were able to walk through the topic together. And he came to a different conclusion than me at the end of the study, which is, you know, uh, which is fine. I think we that's ultimately I want him to wrestle with the text and come to Mm -hmm. a conclusion. Um, But I think that it's helpful to kind of have an idea of where you land on this before, you know, Mm -hmm. someone in your congregation or in your ministry, whatever it might be, comes to you with a really, you know, hot topic question. Yeah, that's that's really good wisdom. Um, now, we don't spend the, the episode really debating. Like, you have a right. different, um, you know, uh, perspective or you come to a different position than Leland does, but we don't really uh, debate the topic. So there might be, yeah. um, it would be probably beneficial just to kind of talk about maybe, uh, you know, your position and how you've wrestled through it and how you came to your conclusions why why are you compelled um, to take the position of nonviolence or, or not serving in the military as a Christian? Sure. Um, so I think the core of uh, 
the argument for Christian nonviolence is the teachings of Jesus. Um, as followers of Jesus, you know, we, like, I think we need to really elevate his commands, his ethics, um, his instructions. And so when you go to instructions like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about loving enemies, praying for those who persecute you, turning the other cheek, um, this is all, I think, ways of describing a posture where we choose to suffer instead of taking vengeance. Um, we choose to suffer instead of defending ourselves. Um, and that's not to say that we don't engage evil. I mean, you, you can't say that Jesus didn't engage uh-huh. evil, right? I mean, just think uh-huh. of the exorcisms that he, you know, freeing people from from dark forces that were oppressing yeah. them. Um, but the ultimate way that he engages evil is on the cross, you know, yeah. just so... It's such an upside down way to get victory is to uh-huh. let yourself be killed, and I think that becomes the model. I mean, you can see that throughout the New Testament that we're supposed to die to self, we're supposed to pick up our cross, um, we're supposed to suffer, um, share in the afflictions of Christ. I mean, it becomes a a, a pathway for his followers. I think, uh-huh. and you know it's not to say that there's not any violence in the new testament but i think as you study passages that have to do with violence it's almost always god who um god's the only character who participates in like righteous violence what we'd call violence that is just so so judgment so, you know like pictures in revelation can be very i mean they're very violent Im- images uh-huh. very intense uh, and and God is the the actor in that situation, but we what you can't find is disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, participating in any kind of violence. Um, the one time that I can think of in the New Testament where a follower of Jesus tries to use violence in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, you know, Peter striking the the temple guard. Uh, cutting his ear off, he gets rebuked by Jesus. And in my mind, if there was, if any situation um, was worthy, you know, of using violence for good, it would have been right there, right? Like protecting the innocent son of God, the Messiah, and he gets rebuked. And so I just, I don't see room personally in the New Testament for followers of Jesus to participate in violence. And... I think that you can see through the documents of the early church that that was yeah. just a universally agreed upon principle, which is um, pretty remarkable considering how much diversity and debate was going on in the first few hundred years of church history, of theologians and and bishops and pastors and you know thinkers debating all kinds of different theology. They all pretty much come to the same conclusion on this topic, which is that Christians aren't supposed to use violence. Huh. And uh, most of them also agree that Christians shouldn't join the military, uh, the Roman the uh, you know, the Roman army. Um, and if they're in the Roman army, they should refrain from using violence, so refuse to carry a sword um, if they aren't able to leave the military. So they, they took pretty strong stances on this stuff Yeah, uh, from a from very early time. So to me, that's all... All that put together is very convincing. That um, that was the, that's the expectation of Jesus, and mm-hmm. and there's there's lots of counter arguments, and 
Um, you know, there's a lot to debate, but yeah, and Leland gets into some of those. Um, and I don't want to, you know, get too much into the weeds, but I think I would love to hear your response to this. We didn't do this in in, in the podcast um, specifically, but it seems in Romans 13 that you know Paul's talking about. Um, he's given this command, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about how there's no authority except which God has established. So he's he's lifting up, he even calls the government God's servants mm. at some point. And um, if you skip down to verse 4, talks about how they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, and talks about them bearing the sword. Mm. And just, it seems on the surface here that that maybe the government, as instituted by God, has the right to bear the sword. And, you know, the government has to be implemented by people somehow. Yeah. So are you saying that 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 that's true, but Christians can't be the one implementing that sword? Is that, is that the argument? Yeah, I think th- there's clearly, Paul has a, an expectation that, the Roman Empire is going to continue using violence okay. and has what you might call an idealistic expectation that it will be done in a just way, right? That those who deserve um, <laughs> to be judged will be judged and those who need to be saved will be saved. And I mean, I think historically <laughs> that is not the way it usually plays out, but he has an expectation that the government will continue to use violence. The question, like you said becomes are we as christians supposed to participate in that should we (laughs) want to enter into that you know system of keeping the order of trying to bring peace through the sword and i would argue no but it does i could see how it it might feel duplicitous to say like let's let the government do the dirty work and we'll keep our hands clean you know yeah but there is a precedent i think for that in the way the lord works when you look at, you know, the story of Israel and mm-hmm. that God uses instruments like Babylon to bring True. judgment against Israel and then judges Babylon for being too harsh in their judgment against Israel. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. By using violence against Israel. Um, you have, you know, figures like uh, Cyrus, who I think he's also called God's servant. I think he might even have been called Messiah at one point. Uh, yeah. And so there is a precedent for God using governments and human systems to bring about some order in the world, and they use violence. But that doesn't equate God's people with those systems or doesn't give permission necessarily for God's people to participate uh-huh. um, in those systems. Uh So I would argue that while, yeah, the government's going to continue using violence until Jesus returns, we as Christians are called to to not participate. And and it it is hard to say that because on I do feel, you know, on the one hand, like, well, if people are going to be bearing the sword, I'd like for it to be Christians. Like like people (laughs) who I believe are shaped by, you know, the ethics of Jesus. And do no good from evil, I would say, you know, and I want those people to be the ones bearing the sword if anyone has to, right? Yeah, like that's logically, that's how I think. But the way of Jesus, I can't get over it, says yeah. no, right? 
swords and the plowshares. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I feel like I'm in the middle. Like I, I hear you talk and I'm like, I get it. And I do. I've read, you know, a couple of like Mennonite theologians and um, uh, kind of in the nonviolent tradition. And I always resonate strongly because it does point to Jesus so much. Like it's centered on Jesus. Yeah. Which I think is always good when we talk about how to extrapolate scriptural principles and stuff like that. Um, but at the other hand, there's this pragmatism almost, it feels like, in Leland's position and this necessity that you can find tidbits of it in scripture. And so I, I keep going back between those two poles, like this compelling picture yeah. of Jesus who subverted violence for the good of many to give life, right? Like the cross, you can't get over the cross. Yeah. It's just the most beautiful act of subversion. And then you have these other like kind of pragmatic arguments, even with Paul, like, and I think it's culturally situated with Paul and Romans 13 and stuff and whatnot, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that conflict, that debate, that tension, I mean, it goes all the way back to the time of Constantine, that you have this moment where the government, which was... which wasn't Christian before and in in different periods was actually anti-Christian uh-huh. has now declared itself to be Christian and declares the empire to be Christian. And so now the power structure itself, this worldly power structure, all of a sudden has um, the name of Christ stamped on it. And, and that's why Augustine started wrestling with and trying to come up with solutions like just war theory because he's saying well the roman empire can't just you know throw away all its swords then all the you know the these different groups you know out of you know northern europe and stuff they're going to come in and they're going to take over if we just become pacifists yeah like it doesn't work that's that's, yeah so he has to start making these compromises you know and it sounds harsh to call them compromises but i mean he has to Something has to give, and so right. he starts coming right. up with theories for what justifies the use of violence. And he has pretty strict criteria for what is a just war. Um, I think there's very few wars uh, over the last two thousand years that would actually fit his criteria, if any. Um, there might be a couple, but like he comes up with really strict criteria. Huh. But yeah, it's it's an old tension. It's a this old conflict that we've been wrestling with as a people since since Augustine. Well, I, I think that's enough preface for this conversation, and um, you'll really enjoy this interview because Leland brings um, his experience in the military background and also his wisdom as a follower of Jesus. So um, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Leland. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for being with us today. Excited to kind of hear your perspective on this stuff. Uh, why don't you just start by giving us your story, you know, your background, your experience. That'd be really helpful, I think. Yeah, yeah, thanks, uh, you know, again for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Leland. I had I retired from the Marine Corps in 2014, so served a full career. I gave my life to to Jesus in the Marine Corps, 
Um, I arguably grew up in cultural Christianity, but it was in the Marine Corps that I really began to understand uh, who Jesus was, um, what a real response of faith or allegiance to him was and what it looked like. And so I had the really um, the joy of walking with him throughout my, well, for the majority of my Marine Corps career and uh, came out of the Marine Corps, went to Denver Seminary and went into ministry after that doing uh, revitalizations, church planting, some consulting work, uh, all mainly focused in either military areas like the Washington, D.C. area or actual um, military communities like Vicenza, Italy, uh, Lake and Heath, England, um, and now here I am in Oahu, uh, Hawaii. Mm. That's quite the journey. You've been all over the place. Yes. Yeah. World traveler. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, so we're excited to have, as someone who's been in the military and been ministering among um, military folks, uh, I think it's helpful to have your perspective on this topic as we discuss Christian, Christianity, you know, Jesus in conversation with violence, in conversation with military service. But maybe maybe just start there as uh, someone who was in the military. You know, when you joined the military, you were saying you weren't a Christ follower, came to faith in the military. How did, did that, did you notice a change in, in how you served as a Marine um, before and after coming to Christ? And what was your experience like as a Marine who was also a Jesus follower? How did those two things yeah. interface? So I, I'm, I want to be clear. I was, uh, I was never the, the genuine, or I guess the, the normal cliche picture of a Marine. I'm never the guy, uh, kicking in doors, clearing rooms, going from house to house, uh, in wartime situations. That was not my position. I had plenty of friends that did that and, um, have had plenty of conversations with them. So let me just kind of start there. And then move into your question. I just don't want to build an unrealistic expectation of my sure. time uh, in the world. And so, um, you know, before giving my life to Jesus, I would say that I was a typical young Marine participating in all the things that young Marines participate in, all the things that, uh, you know, a hedonistic culture really has to offer and never really questioning, hey, is this good? I'm on a deployment um, where I'm on a ship in the middle of the ocean and um, I'm confronted by Jesus and I submit my life to him and immediately the world looks different. My environment huh. looks different. The um, the things I participated in, my definition of good, it, it really, for me, and I don't think this is probably true for everyone, so I don't want to paint a, you know too broad a brush, but for me... It was one of those 180 moments. Um, and so being on a ship, you don't really have a lot of distractions while you're out there. And so mm. it also gave me the opportunity to really dive into Scripture. I was discipled by some really faithful men uh, that were on deployment with me. But as we start to think about what does that look like in the military, one of the things that I think pertains to this podcast is because I gave my life to Jesus in the military, when I gave my life to Christ, I didn't immediately start saying, Leland, is it okay 
biblically or theologically to be serving in the military as a disciple of Jesus. Hmm. Like there was, there was no thought in my mind that went all the way back to the beginning and then tried to work forward. It just simply began where I was. I am the military in this particular moment. What does it look like to live faithfully for Jesus as best as I can each day moving forward in my military career? So some of the things that typically happens, at least uh, I think is a pretty common experience, is you are a part of a brotherhood when you're in the military. But the brotherhood has a way of living that is right, wrong, or indifferent. It is it leans or is naturally hedonistic or, um, you know, what we would probably throw, uh, you know, like fleshly, you know, looking to fulfill the desires of the eyes and the flesh and all of that kind of stuff. That is its natural bent. And so if you are going to live a life that is contrary to that, you are still in the brotherhood, but you are not in the inner circle huh. of the brotherhood. And so you are kind of in the military, but you are not really fully received um, in every sense of the brotherhood, especially if you're not willing to go out after work, have some drinks, uh, you know, go and do certain things that uh, are, you know, uh, against God's definition of good. And you're the one saying, no, I love my family. I want to spend quality time with them. I'm going to forego the after party and I'm going to go home and love my wife, kids well. That's not the norm. And so hmm. those are the experiences that I had that were different. But I will also say, you know, I'll give a quick example. Um, even though I was in the Marine Corps, had great friends in the Marine Corps, um, desired to be a Christ follower in the Marine Corps, but was not fully accepted because... I desire to be a Christ follower. Anytime something happened, um, let's say your wife wanted a divorce or uh, you felt like, you know, you were having suicidal ideations uh, or anything, I was almost always the person that they came to. Huh. I mean, from stories of, you know, when I was in Iraq, having uh, some of my, one of my Marines um, show up at my, my hoochie you know, two in the morning with a loaded, um, you know, M4 saying, I need you to take this from me or I'm going to use it and having worked through that with him. So there was something also beautiful about portraying or reflecting Christ's character as best as I could in a military environment that while you weren't accepted when people were doing things that were, you know, on the extreme side, you were absolutely this safe zone that people knew you could go to if when trouble hit. Does that sense? Yeah, that's really in interesting that there could simultaneously, you know, for you as a Christ follower, there's kind of on the one hand a stigma where you're kind of on the outside when it comes to, you know, the good times, as we might call it, or the having fun or that kind of stuff. But then when challenges come, then all of a sudden you become, you're almost safe because you're on the outside. You're safe. You are living a different kind of life that people are attracted to. Yeah, that's really, that is beautiful, the way that God can use you in that situation in that way. And I would imagine that that resonates with people in different job sectors, right? You could be in 
banking and there could be a, you know, a work culture that's not conducive to to godliness or whatever and you can choose not to participate in that. Right? So I'm sure that could resonate in, in other other areas as well. Um I think one of the things we're going to try to lean into is this whole idea of military service. Is there something in the job itself that could be compromising to uh, your Christian faith? And for some people, that's even like a ridiculous question to ask, right? Like, I grew up in a church culture in the Bible Belt where on Memorial Day services or on Memorial Day weekend, our service took on this flavor of red, white, and blue, and people in the military came and shared their testimony. And at its worst, the Star-Spangled Banner was played during a worship service, and, and people didn't realize what we're doing, but we're kind of putting Jesus on the second-place podium for the day, and America was kind of taking that. So military service was was enmeshed with Christian service yeah, uh, for a lot of people, right? So even to pose the question that military service could be compromising to Christian faith for some people is just like, what are you talking about? Um. So I, I pose that. Yeah, I think that's probably um, the normal. Uh, maybe it's not in today's culture, but you know, when I was growing up, where I grew up, as well as um, most people that I spoke with, they are not wrestling with the question: Is it okay to yeah. serve in the military as a Christ follower? So to even to even bring this conversation up, I mean, to make a joke about it, it kind of makes you sound like a communist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a phrase we use a lot. Um, man, that's communist. Why would you say that? Or why would you do that? So it, it's hard because you're trying to be faithful to Christ, knowing full well that the moment the topic is brought up, walls immediately go up. And and the blinders in our lives, there are assumptions that exist underneath the surface, and we don't even realize it. You know, the, the correct term, I think, is it's a cultural moral. Hmm. Um, yeah, when we went over to Italy, the idea of owning a gun or having a personal gun in your house would have been the craziest thing ever. And so... For in most of America, the idea of, you know, the freedom to have your own gun that, I mean, of course, that's, that's yeah. a God given right that we need to defend. You go yeah. to another country and they're like, dude, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. What <laughs> and so that's right. the difference in a cultural moray. We have a cultural moray about the military. Now it's, it's definitely coming apart at the seams, hmm. but still for the most part, I don't think we're at the level to where most Christians are saying, is it okay or is it faithful? Can I, am I living God's definition of good by serving in the U.S. multi? And how, how is, have you wrestled with that question over the years or where have you landed on that or have you landed? So I, I think um, I would definitely have to say that until I went to seminary, I, I never even asked the question. Uh-huh. Um, I remember one time I was serving as a youth pastor. I was still active Moraine. I was serving as a youth pastor at you as a youth pastor at a church. And um, someone came up to me and said, "What would you say to someone uh, if they came up to you and said um, that it's not okay to serve in the military? Um, what if they said uh, that Jesus came to bring peace? 
And so I remember like I immediately retorted like a completely unprocessed uh, <laughs> from this, you know, assumptive side of me that is like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, being completely unaware of the cultural more within me and was like, you know, um, didn't Jesus also say that he didn't come to bring, bring peace, but he came to bring a sword? You know, it was like something <laughs> like something like that or off the cuff, like just completely whipped it out, just took the verse out of context. Made no sense if you to really unpack it in the moment. But the guy's like, oh, OK, yeah, thanks. And end of conversation. That was the only time that I can remember. <laughs> that. So there is no wrestling in my military career. None. Mm. It yeah. was simply how to live sure. faithfully in the military. So you're wrestling with wrestling with aspects of the job um but not with whether being in the job itself was inherently a problem okay mm -hmm. cool that's exactly right so fast forward to, to denver i'm in denver seminary and people began to talk to me uh, like uh, you were in the military and this became an issue with people it's a non-denominational seminary so you've got all hmm. different viewpoints that are coming in and all of a sudden, people were challenging, how could you have served in the military and call yourself a Christ follower? And this is the first time that I've ever had this opposition. It really sunk in that I needed to wrestle with this when a former Marine um, who had served in Iraq, he was struggling with some, I'll just call them under-the-surface issues, some scars internally from serving in war zone. And he had come to the conclusion that... Uh, that he was, a, he was a pacifist in the sense of you cannot be a Christian and serve in the military, that kind of thing. I don't know where he fell on whether he could have guns in his house or not. I, I didn't get uh -huh. But conversations with him helped me realize, no, I actually need to wrestle through this. And much of the theology that I have today came from that time simply because it was the first time that uh, I had to defend it. And so like most times, or most of us, when we have to defend something that we believe is right, I immediately dove into the topic of, I'm right about this topic. How do I use scripture to prove that I am right about this topic? And it's been a journey for me to, uh, to even get to a place of nuance, um, because even directly after seminary, I would have, I would have just used the typical verses and typical perspectives that are completely unnuanced, not really rooted in history very well to defend a position that I assumed was correct. Yeah. And that, I mean, just to give props to you, I mean, that takes a lot of courage, I think, to examine something that's a part of your identity, like a part of who you are, part of your, your personal history, your experience, to really say, okay, I want to look at this in light of Scripture and see what God has to say about it. I think a lot of times whether it's military service or whether it's something completely different about who we are and where we come from and the jobs that we have or the vocations that we we hold i think we're hesitant sometimes to examine them because we're afraid of what we might what we might find out so mm -hmm. i mean it takes courage to even make that journey so um it's really neat that the spirit led you through that yeah i would second that i would say i wouldn't say that the journey's over um i i have to that i it would be I have limits. I, you know, I don't want to have limits. I want the spirit to have complete control. But um, even when there is convincing evidence, I find in my own self a wrestle 
that leads me back to an experiential theology and experiential mm. in the sense of the good things that I saw the spirit do through Christ followers while I was in the military. Mm. And so it, it's always blocked me from ever getting to a place to where I could say, no, you cannot serve in the military and be a Christ follower. So even when there are great theological arguments for not being able to serve or a completely pacifist, my experiential theology steps in and says, yeah, but I've seen God's right. goodness happen. Yeah. Right. I think almost that's, that's what's, what's push a pause on that part, because I think that's a key component to, to kind of wrap things up is there's a redemptive quality that you've experienced in the military. Even some of the stories you've already shared that I think as people who are wrestling through it, um, that could be a good place to land is, well, even if you think, you know, this is permissible that you can be in the military, how are you supposed to be in the military as a Christ follower? I think that's a good place we'll go. But before we get there, when people are pressing you at Denver on just this uh, Denver seminary, just as this idea that um, you couldn't be in the military as a Christian, what are what what is that argument? What are they saying? Is it because you're complicit with violence? Are you complicit with um, America, um, and whatever globalist agenda that is, what is, what is the problem? What is the exact argument that they're making there by saying you can't be in the military? So part of the challenge, and I know that both of you know what I'm talking about. When you're first going through seminary, everything you say is a wonderful statement that you still really have no clue how to defend <laughs> or support. So these conversations would begin typically in a quizzical slash accusational question of how is that okay? And so having no clue that it came from a place of assumption off of experiences and their own, you know, teachings from that point. And so instead of, you know, beginning a dialogue, I immediately began this monologue back and forth with people to where they gave, you know, really unsubstantiated claims um, that pulling scripture out of context to tell me, well, it says this. And then I would just basically do the exact same thing back. And it would go back and forth, completely unhelpful, ruining relationships. Um, and to make it even worse, you know, I'm coming out of the Marine Corps. And I like to say that, you know, I, I had these barbs, you know, that were around me because the military culture is very blunt often. In fact, we welcome a bluntness that I'd learned pretty quickly after arriving at Denver, not usually appreciated in the way that it's appreciated at military. <laughs> and so I'm like this, you know, blown China shop, you know, just looking for the opportunity to say, dude, that's all jacked up. What's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? <laughs> Thinking that that's a positive idea to do in this young civilian environment um, and it did not go so well I'll just put it that way my wife might <laughs> use different words but it didn't go so well <laughs> that's funny so there was really no nuance to their arguments um, I have only encountered really good arguments through podcast and through reading mm -hmm. yeah and what so what's what about those arguments then just to kind of yeah, we didn't have good arguments from the seminary students at the time, but maybe what are some arguments today um, 
or maybe Denver, if you have kind of some, some of the stuff you've read. I know Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, is a resource that kind of talks about this. Um, yeah, I don't know if we just want to at least air some of those, because some people may have no idea, like we said, they haven't even asked this question, and it doesn't even enter their radar. So, Yeah, like you've mentioned, Leland, you've kind of developed nuance over the years, and so maybe a good way to tease that out would be to present these um, yeah. cases that scholars have made and kind of hear you in dialogue with them. Um, so yeah, you mentioned one, uh, Taylor, Preston Sprinkle's done a lot of work on this topic. He wrote the book Fight, uh, in which he argued that um, after examining the Old Testament, the New Testament, early church fathers, um, he believed that the Christ teaching on this topic was that Christians can't use violence. Um, and then we also have uh, George Calancis. He's looked at, specifically looked at this idea of military service. And I think we've talked about this before, Leland, and so um, we can dialogue some about it. But he argues in his book, Caesar and the Lamb, um, that if you examine the church fathers as a whole, that this is one topic that they all seem to be on the same page about, and that's that they believe that that uh, people who were following Christ um, should not be allowed to join the Roman military, um, and that people who are in the Roman military either have to leave it or to give up their sword and serve in a way where they don't use violence and. And he argues that one reason the fathers make the, that argument is um, because of the use of violence, but then the other side of it is because of the oaths that Roman soldiers uh, had to make, you know, to serve, to be allegiant, to uh, to be loyal to Rome and to uh, its objectives, uh, to the empire and to Caesar specifically. And so, those are some of the cases that have been made um, by scholars as far as. Um, and obviously we don't have time on the podcast to like exegetically go through like every passage in the New Testament and Old Testament. But in general, there, there are, um, I think, I think I would say a growing number, um, of scholars who are, who are arguing this, um, a Christian case for nonviolence and for avoiding military service. Um, how, how would you, you know, kind of tease out your perspective in, in conversation with that if, if, uh, can. So I think the three best arguments are the two that you brought up, which are the oaths, um, church history, when we look at the church fathers and their interpretation of Jesus's words and his call to faithfulness. And then the third would be an anthropological argument. And I think all three of these actually carry weight in a an environment um, to where we're purely dialoguing about the topic. So the oaths, I mean, you are, and this is where we get into, um, and Bates has done a lot of work with this. Um, we're talking about this idea of faith as allegiance. And we'll begin to, can begin to understand uh, that our faith means that we are giving our allegiance to Jesus as King. How can we then, you know, raise our right hand and, uh, you know, give our pledge of allegiance to a flag or to say that, um, you know, I, uh, my full name, uh, promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Right. It's this idea that there is a document or there is a um, country 
that I can give my allegiance to. I think that is a valid argument in a vacuum, right? Um, mm. I think that it is a valid argument to say that the church fathers were completely against it, that there was no way that you could faithfully serve the kingdom of God and then go and take lives of people that he created in his image. I, I, I think, once again, in a vacuum, that is an extremely valid argument. The third that most don't argue, but I think those who turn pacifists to have served in the military use this argument, and I call it the anthropological argument, and to say that the damage that is done to a person's soul, huh. to their identity, to who they are as a created human being designed to reflect the image of God, the damage that happens to that person at the innermost level, when they have to pull a trigger, when they have to, when they have to be in an area, um, when they have to drop ordinance, um, when they, I mean, to take the life of another human being that you don't know, you can't, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove that that person from a justice perspective, if we're going to use that argument, deserved the punishment that they received, has scars that will forever shape. Huh. And so I think that anthropological argument, if I'm being completely honest, is more powerful to me outside of the vacuum because inside of the vacuum, I can talk about how most people would view like the Constitution in and of itself is not an unjust or a anti-biblical document. And so to say that I will support and defend the Constitution and I will give my allegiance to a document that ultimately is trying to create a just society hmm. in and of itself, not um, a, a, a an allegiance against Christ. It's actually one that can coexist with Christ. I do understand that, you know, there's an argument against making oaths of any kind. I do get that. But I, I don't think that, you know, outside of the vacuum, um, it that really holds water. Um, I also, you know, would say that even though the church fathers had that perspective, um, I also recognize that, especially when we start talking about Paul, he does to have the view that military or government control or influence is better than anarchy. Okay. And we probably need to get that in today's society because, you know, when we, when we go to the individual level, um, you know, there's a decision that has to be made. But when you think about a societal or a worldly system, Paul seems to understand that anarchy is actually more detrimental than a, a you know a crossbreed of God's definition of good and worldly definition of good, and so just understanding that no country is doing it perfect. Yeah, just to press a little bit, because I think this could be um, offer some clarity. Is there a specific passage in Paul that you're thinking of? That well, I think, uh, you know, Romans 13 is probably the place that most people would go, and I'm okay with using something like that. I think Peter talks about it uh, some as well. 
But Romans 13 is definitely the place where most would kind of perch on. And I know um, uh, Sprinkle, uh, Preston Sprinkle, he's done some work specifically on Romans 13 to to try to nuance some of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I appreciate the work. But I still don't think that he overcomes the basic argument that um, government control is viewed as better than anarchy. And that having someone wielding the sword against injustice, even though it will always be done imperfectly, is better than, um, you know, a complete anarchical society without um, someone defining good for that society. Yeah. Do you think it's valid? Because this is where I usually land, but I'm always like questioning my own, you know, position. But um, do you think it's valid to argue that we want someone wielding the sword, you know, for now in this, you know, this era until Christ comes back, um, but that we as Christians shouldn't be the one wielding it? They like to say, like, to, to kind of leave that, I don't know if you would say, like, dirty work. Yeah, that's what <laughs> it feels di- like. Leave the dirty work to the worldly government um, for the time being and not participate in ourselves. Because on one level, that feels kind of hypocritical of saying, like, yeah, I'm glad someone's doing it, but we can't do it. We have to keep our hands clean. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like when I am reading the claims of Christ and, and even Paul and other passages where it seems like that's not a valid option for me to participate, um, but that, like you said, in Romans 13, there's a reason that the sword is being wielded um, in general and that God allows that. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I will say that I have been shaped a lot by Matthew 5. And um, the end of Matthew 5, um, Jesus says, so be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And and what I understand him to be saying there is actually tied to the the section right above it, where he says that that God gives this common grace to where He, you know, causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He He seems to desire to create a system, uh, at least until the culmination of all things, to where it is possible for people to flirt, for people to. Uh, to live a life free from the devastations of all the things that we see in the brokenness of our world. And so when I look at that, um, I recognize that we're never going to do that perfectly. Like, we want to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And there is an aspect of His perfection that He allows this common grace to fall upon the world. And when you think about... um, serving in the government, you think about uh, serving in the military, being in all of these places, it's messy. I mean, it is super messy, and it requires tremendous discernment on how to navigate through that. In other words, there are moments where you're, I mean, from some perspectives, it could look like you are compromising because you're allowing it to rain on people that are outside of God's definition of good. And then there are other times because you're in that position that you're able to direct the flow of things in a way that protected the, the system from going off the rails. You brought it back to a, a greater foundation of morality at the end of the day. And so if we look at the government and we say the government is supposed to be the church, 
then you're right. You can never serve in the government because there's no way to get God's definition of good fully infiltrated into these systems. But if you understand as a uh, a member, uh, uh, as a as a member of the body of Christ, I am coming in and I am seeking to do as much of God's definition of good as I can in this system. Then yes, I believe that you can. But here's the key. This is where ultimately I think we're failing. And that is, are we willing to give it all up? Are we willing to pay the ultimate cost when the hill worth dying for presents itself? And that's where I think we've been failing. In other words, if I serve in the military, there's a day that may come that the Spirit directs me to say no to an order I have received. The consequences of saying no is I will lose my career. I will be punished. I will be, you know, kicked out of the military. Now, it maybe not, you know, that extreme, but it that's that's kind of the ultimate side of it. And let's say absolutely it would be, um, as long as it's a lawful order. So if it's a lawful order, then yes, that would be breaking that oath. And then in all, I mean, for most, depending on what the situation is, maybe that's a better term, then you could ultimately get a bad conduct discharge, which affects you the rest of your life. Every job you ever apply for, you can be hindered because you got a bad conduct discharge. Your quality of life would go down dramatically. And so your willingness to take a stand on what you sense the spirit leading you to do in that moment can cost you everything from a, a basic worldly perspective. Same thing as an elected official. If I stand up and I say the things, I do my best to nuance them so that I am inclusive as much as I can be because I'm not the church, right? I am the government. I desire to, to bring rain upon everyone. But it's that I can't cross this line. I can't agree with this. I can't sign this bill. I can't whatever. At that point, are you willing to give up that career, to lose that career and be sent back? And so that's, I think, the bigger challenge as we start talking about this at the individual level is do you have the maturity and the spiritual discernment to know when the spirit is telling you to sing. Mm. Yeah. Which as Taylor mentioned before, I mean, that discernment, uh-huh. the stakes are higher in a military uh-huh. uh, context, but it, it does, it comes up in most contexts, probably most, most jobs, um, most careers, markets, vocations, you can come up against a situation where you're having to choose between your career, your vocation, um, the commands or the orders or the objectives you've been given and your allegiance to Christ and having to make that decision. But I think like what you're highlighting is that those stakes are much even higher in the military because again, you've taken those oaths. And so there's serious consequences to, to breaking them. Um, so when you, when you take an oath, because I'm unfamiliar with this as a, as an outsider to the, the military world, when you take that oath to the military, is the expectation that, that this oath, it, I mean, it's going to be your first priority. This is this is going to trump uh, any other allegiances you have. Because, um, like, we could talk, like, Jesus asks us to be 
loyal to him, right? And we confess him as Lord. And, and it's obvious from the New Testament that the expectation is that is your like foundational identity, that your loyalty to him can't be compromised by anything else. Is there the same expectation in the military with your oaths um, to the U.S. government and the U.S. military? Uh, and if so, is that where some of the tension comes in, that these are vying for priority? Which oath is more important? So there's kind of two sides to this. The system that is the U.S. military expects that. When you take this oath, that this is your first priority. But I know most people, there's some extreme, but most people take that oath not even thinking a millisecond about, okay, this is what's required for me to get in the military. Got it. Raise my right hand, say this thing. We don't, I mean, even myself, I didn't stop and pause and think about every single word that I was saying. Right? It was a basic general idea that, hey, I'll be a good Marine. Got it. You know, um, I will follow the lawful orders that are given to me. I mean, that's basically more what it felt like I was saying. And I, I think maybe in past generations that was different, but I will say in my generation and in this new generation, most like, aren't even thinking about that. Like most are thinking about what's the minimum that I can do to be good. Like I'm good to go. Uh, and that's just kind of where we're gliding as a society. And so that's probably why this oaths of allegiance is, is so difficult because in today's society, that oath of allegiance, it's, it's not an oath the way that they would have taken. Like in this honor and shame culture, like this is identity shaping to us. Hmm. It's become, ah, it's just another thing I got to do. Yeah. That's where I think when you say a lot of these things have weight in a vacuum, um, that's kind of exposing outside the vacuum. I mean, these people are just, are just taking part of this. It's like signing the paperwork, agreeing to the terms and conditions before, you know, you download the application. You never read those. You don't know what you're doing. You know. But just in the kind of ideal situation again, and I will put, I'll just be the last time I push on it, and it just reminds me of one, um, one uh, author I've read and kind of in this vein of thinking of America as empire. And as any kind of service or um, military involvement, government involvement with America would be complicity with with empire. Um, I just want to read this and get your thoughts. Uh, this is from Brian Zahn's book, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile, page 48. Um, and this is how he, he talks about how we interact with the Bible on this issue, which I think is a good topic we could explore more. Um, Zahn says, I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem. So the few things there I want to just explore. 
One is this idea of America as a Babylon or as an Egypt or as an archetypal empire similar to Rome um, might change how we interact with it if we kind of have that mindset. And secondly, how we employ the Bible in rationalizing in our discernment, I think is really, really important here. Um, so how does that hit you or what are some things that you could respond to from your perspective? As we start to like unpack that, I, I think we have to recognize his perspective on it. On him. And first kind of survey across and say, I mean, he's not wrong in the basic sense of those who are born in America in general have been born within a super, I've been born um, to where your, uh, your passport carries a weight in other countries that many other countries don't. I mean, there is a, you know, kind of, you know, superiority there in some ways. Uh, whether it's more perception than reality today, that's that's a different conversation. But I mean, I think he's right on that. Where we start to dive underneath that is first and foremost, let's let's think about suffering. Okay, suffering in and of itself is, is we often kind of um, look at it as echelons of suffering. So the people in um, you know in some area of the country or of the world that is enslaved or whatever, that level of suffering is different than the level of suffering that is oppression today um, if you're a certain minority group or a certain color living um, in America and the oppression that can happen. The, the challenge when we compare uh, something like suffering, I'm going to use this as a basic example, is it's unfair to, to compare apples and oranges. Because to the people that are living under that oppression, it feels like oppression. And how do we then, you know, measure what is greater oppression over, you know, this other? I mean, they both have mental and physical things that, that are caused upon you. And so when we start talking about this subject, the same thing to me happens when we start saying, well, I'm not, you know, an Israelite in this situation or not you know, uh, first century Judean uh, under Roman. Like, that's not, like, it's it's just not the way that I think we're being faithful with Scripture. And so to say, oh, it was worse for them or was this, I think it just simply means, just like throughout time, a first century Judean couldn't understand necessarily what it was like to, to be uh, deported into Babylon. But yet that era spoke to that first century Jew. And so the same thing happens to us today, even though we were born in the circumstances that we were born in. Scripture does something to that generation. And then because of the power of the Spirit, it says something to our generation, regardless of our context. It's not fair to, to compare them and try to pretend like they're both apples. And therefore, I can't, you know, Scripture wasn't written, you know, for me, I mean, we have the saying, Scripture may not have been written to me, but it was absolutely written for me. Uh -huh. And I think as we start down this dialogue, I, I personally think that's important to understand because we often try to compare things as if it's apple to apple. And right. that's just, that's not reality. So we have to instead recognize, yes, they were in a different culture. Yes, they were in a different time. Uh, yes, uh, their circumstances was very different, but also... 
we also have to recognize that they knew nothing different. And the power of not knowing anything different on our perception and how we receive things and how we see the world and how we're shaped. Like what I don't know what I don't know and I don't know what I don't know is extremely powerful when it comes to my identity. I think the point I'm trying to draw out is there's a spectrum here of unfaithful Bible reading where we read these texts and say, I grew up in the tradition where Second um, Chronicles 7 was talking about America, right? If my people called by my name, you know, would turn, repent, well, I would bless them. And then on the other end of it, there's guys like Zond and maybe some other empire critics who read Rome and it's, it's America. Rome is America. So it's both of these are readings of the Bible where they just make easy, almost immediate jumps to our, our political situation today. And I think both of those are dangerous. And both of those require contextualization because just like, yes, we are not first century Judeans, we are also not first century Roman Empire citizens in the way. Like there's so much difference there, the apples and oranges to what you were saying. So I think with both both sides of this argument, at least have I experienced them, need nuanced interactions with the Bible and to say, how how can we take political descriptions and prescriptions of the Bible and wisely spirit-filled, spirit-led um, interpretation? How, how can we get spirit-led interpretation today? Um, I think is really critical. Yeah, because it's not, like you said, there's no one-for-one correspondence. That's where the danger comes in. I mean, I mean, if you want to butcher Revelation, try to make one-for-one correspondences with what's happening today, right? Right. Uh, and so it takes, I think this is where wisdom comes in, right? That we have the wisdom to ask ourselves, how does a Christ follower live in this context that I'm in? Maybe no one in the Bible has been in this exact context, but thankfully, I mean, this is, I think, one of the beauties of the Bible because it was written over such a large period of time in a lot of different contexts. We get to see people trying to live um, the way of Yahweh in various contexts that we can, and we can draw wisdom from those while understanding none of them are going to fit one for one with where we are, right? But using the, the Holy Spirit, using wisdom to understand, okay, where I'm at, what does it look like to follow Christ? What are the principles that do hold through time and and through context? And, and I think that's part of the beauty of Revelation too, right? Like part of the, the, the point of Revelation is this is a timeless struggle. <laughs> How do you live in a world where the powers that be still have power? Where Christ is king, but there's still violence in the world. There's still power struggles. Um, there's still corruption and injustice. Uh, and it's the question every generation has to ask, right? Like, how do we live in this context? So do you have any wisdom for us, Leland? Any insight? <laughs> or how do we live with wisdom uh, in this context? Yeah, I think that, honestly, this idea of wisdom and discernment, you've heard me enough to know that I, I value Deuteronomy 4 as a lens for life. Um, faithful to Yahweh as a lens, uh, even today, faithful to Christ. Um, when he says uh, that the purpose of the law 
uh, Moses says, the purpose of the law is to give you wisdom and discernment. Right? We think of it as, uh, he doesn't say, you know, it's to give you rules to live by. That, that's not what Moses is trying to communicate. It's to give you wisdom and discernment. You know, when we read through scripture and all these situations, it's designed to give us wisdom and discernment. And I'm shaped by something Jesus says to farm. Right. So today, think about it. I, mean, I grew up on a farm. And so typically, um, most of the, the scholars that I speak with today, um, if they're going to make a joke about someone, you know, not having a depth of knowledge, they're going to talk about someone from the South, most likely working on a farm. <laughs> like you're just thinking about, okay, dude, these guys, they don't ponder anything in depth other than what season is it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But so Jesus is talking to them and he says, essentially, basically, you know, when the sky is this color, this is what the weather's going to look like. You know what's going on here when you look at the patterns of the world around you, but you fail to discern what God is doing among you. Yeah. And so there are a lot of disciplines that I teach to help us gain this wisdom and discernment, but I'll talk about the number one. And that is we in America are scared to death of silence and solitude. Huh. It's the number one discipline that I teach is silence and solitude. We most, most of us struggle to be alone. Like there are plenty of introverts that love being alone, huh. but most would still fear loneliness to feel separation from other people, to not feel like there's a connection with other people. And we fear silence. So the moment there's silence, we get uncomfortable and we, we start saying things like I've got to fill the, the space. But yet when we see the rhythms of you know people throughout the Bible, but of course the the traditional is to go to someone like Jesus, um, and how he escaped from everyone to be in silence and solitude and prayer with the Father. And I don't know that we are willing to slow down enough to separate ourselves enough to actually one believe that God desires to communicate with us. And then two, to give him the space and the time for him to, to communicate with us. Huh. In my own growth, in this whole process, the number one thing that has impacted me is silence and solitude. And that's specifically as a means of posturing yourself to hear from God and practice that discernment? Yes, but also as a posture, think of like the early church would have fasted twice a week. You know, because most people, to, to be able to get away for a couple of days and just be silent and still before the Lord, that just wasn't possible. So one of the ways that they did that was fasting, and that allowed you to recognize that my dependency is not on fleshly desires. My dependency is on the Lord. You know, you hear Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but out of every word that proceeded from the mouth of the, of the Father, of the Lord. And so when you think about that, this becomes a way that I, I don't immediately have access to my phone. I can't immediately respond to text. Uh, I, I am unavailable for people if an emergency comes up. All of a sudden, we can't even imagine this scenario 
But yet God wants us to have a reliance and a dependence and, you know, a trust in him that says, I can cut these things out of my life and you are still sufficient for me. Hmm. Um, and, and out of that overflow, there's just, like it has changed the way I am able to dialogue with people on this topic and on multiple other topics that I probably don't agree with. Uh, but I do think that this ability to get to a place to where we are open to the spirit, uh, you know, as, as Scott McKnight would say, open, uh, uh, open and aware, open and available, I think is he's got a book on the Holy Spirit to where he repeats that over and over again. And I think that's that's really where we're trying to get to. But we can't get there from here because we put so many obstacles in the way. I think that's, that's a really good place to kind of start landing the plane in this conversation. Um, and honestly, I think it's a beautiful place to land. Um, I think there's there's a lot of arguments on both sides. There's a lot of kind of idealized arguments as well that can kind of occupy this space. Um, but for the pastor who's maybe being asked by someone in their congregation or being asked by someone in this congregation, her congregation about, can I serve in the military? Should I consider this? I think we've given some resources to provide an answer of, of sorts. One of the big ones is this practice of discernment. Um, not only in uh, our lives as ministry laborers, but also in trying to instill that in other people where they can start discerning these questions and really seeking the Lord um, on them. Let's say that you're a pastor and you're talking with someone and someone who is in the military comes up to you and says, can I serve um, in the military? I think the, the real right upfront question is not can, but how do, how do I serve in the military? I'm already in, right? This is like, regardless of how we view it, God has in some way allowed my steps to arrive at this location doing this. So a healthier first question is how, right? And then on the back end, I'm going to try to work in the idea that are you willing, right? One, are you are you participating with the Spirit? Are you building rhythms and practices in your life that are opening you up to being available for the Spirit to guide you every moment of your day so that if he says, you know, your leader says go right and the Spirit says go left, you're willing to give up everything and go left to the voice of the Spirit. That's for every follower, but especially the military. Let's say they're not, you know, they're not in the military. That's the beginning point. Like, do you have a confirmation of some sort that this is what the Lord is leading you into? Because hmm. all of the arguments, and let's talk about the most powerful one, in my opinion, the anthropological argument. The people that have been able to find healing after doing the things that they did hmm. are the ones who had a clear direction from the Lord that this is what I want you to do. And then those actions, they were able to turn and lay at the feet of Jesus and say, this is broken. I don't understand it. I'm hurting because of it. But I know you told me to serve, to, to stay in the military, whatever. And so we're not going to go so far as to say, you know, God told them to, to go to war, pull a trigger or whatever. But they know that service was something that the Lord drew them into. It was a question they were asking beforehand. Those people are the ones who 
you know, at an interior level are not as damaged as those who don't have a place. Yeah. So those are just some of my, my, you know, I want to be clear about those two from a pastoral perspective about what I would say for people. And, and for people who are in, this is the number one thing that I try to teach them is to grow in wisdom and discernment so that, you know, if, you know, World War Three happens, whatever, and you're called into to pulling triggers or dropping ordinance or whatever, you know, are you at a place to where you can truly discern the will of the Spirit in that moment? And are you willing to lose it all if the Spirit says, go this way, even though your leaders are saying go that way? I think it's just really important if you are going to faithfully serve in the military. I think that's great. That's helpful perspective. No, I think that's, that's a great place to kind of wrap up. Well, as I said in the beginning, guys, I am very grateful that you gave me the opportunity to share just some of my thoughts. Um, that I will continue to grow in this topic as well. But uh, I am grateful that the Lord has when you watched as much within me to this journey uh, up to me. Yeah. Well, thank you, Leland, for your perspective. Thank you for your service uh, in a military capacity, but more importantly, uh, to the kingdom and just your willingness to engage in the conversation and to minister to people who are a few steps behind you, who are who are still in the military serving being in those communities, loving on them, speaking truth. I mean, what a ministry. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. concludes our episode and thanks again for listening. The Learning Laborers exist to create an intentional space for ministry experience and scholarship to overlap. We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. And if you are interested in supporting these efforts, check out our Patreon where you can join us by giving as little as $3 per month. Our hope is that more laborers, more ministry leaders, can feel resourced to point people to Jesus through their study of scripture. Continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.